And if you have a Bible or if you have a device, you want to turn to Acts 1. Don't think that it's uh, any accident that before the foundation of the world, um, God somehow knew and had planned that we would be starting the book of Acts with a series called The Church That Jesus Builds at this particular time in the life of our church. And it gives, I should, I should have had some amens after that, but um, I, I get it, it's a, it's a slow morning. But go ahead and turn to Acts chapter one. You know, when it, uh, when it comes to preaching, preachers are only good for one thing. And um, none of you guys are gasping at that. You, might, you probably already know that. Um, but it's to pointing. So a preacher is a pointer. And it's my job not to be funny, not to be entertaining, not to be clever, not to be gimmicky, not to do everything I can to make you feel good. Um, but preachers are contending for souls. So when we open God's word, we're literally contending for souls. We're looking for people out there to be brought from darkness into light. And some of you need to be brought from darkness uh, into light. So this is serious for us. When we start um, a new series in one of the books of the Bible, we're, we're an expositional preaching church, which means we primarily go through books of the Bible. We go into God's word, we exposit, we dig out what's in there because we think those words matter more than any words that I'm ever going to say to you. And so as we start this series in Acts, which again, we're calling the church that Jesus builds, it brings us back to some of our values here, gospel-centered, relationally driven, and God-glorifying. It brings us back to the heart of what Jesus was aiming for after he lived and died, rose and then ascended, which we're gonna learn a little bit about this morning, what his aim was for the church that he builds and is building. What does God want for us? What does God have for us? What is God's desire for us? So the book of Acts, as we dive into it, it's actually the second of what we could really call a two volume set written by this guy named Luke, who also wrote one of the four Gospels. Luke was a physician. Um, he was kind of a man of culture. He observed um, many of the goings-on of Jesus and his life, and then what happened after Jesus when the early church was being put into place, and he chronicled it. Um, and what he's doing here with us in the book of Acts is he's telling us what happens after Jesus finishes his earthly ministry and then goes on to empower his disciples to preach the gospel, to suffer for the gospel, and to actually plant gospel-centered churches. So what Acts is doing is it's showing us how Jesus continued what he started, how he continues to literally act. It's not really the acts of the apostles given what your Bible might say at the beginning, it's really the act of God through the apostles might even be a better way to say it. How he spread his kingdom, a kingdom he has called us into and then sends us out to call others into. As we get further into the book, we're also going to learn the origin story of the apostle Paul. We quote Paul a lot from the New Testament, who was really one of the most unlikely people on earth ever to be saved. So if you look yourself in the mirror and you think, I don't know how God saved me. I mean, I'm a wretch. He saved a wretch like me. We're going to read about Paul and you're going to actually feel a little bit better about yourselves. You weren't any, yeah, you weren't any, it wasn't any less of a cost to save you than Paul, but you probably don't got the track record that, that Paul has, right? And so we're going to learn how God used Paul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. 
And so what Luke does in the book of Acts is he, he tells us what our place is in God's plan, which is to know who we are, to remember who we are in order to press on with the power that we've been given through the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm part of some groups, some pastor groups, some, uh, some boards. Uh, and, and one of the things that, that, that we do is we, we create with these things called living documents. You guys are familiar with that? Um, and what, what it is basically is it's, a, it's, a, it's an online sort of PDF. It's an online page. It's an online document that allows everybody to, to call it up from like a, a Google Drive and then kind of feed into it. So it's not just something that gets printed and typed out and then it's, it's stuck, it's set, but it actually is like what's called something that's living and progressing. And everybody that has access to this, we get to continue to add to it and be creative with it and to continue to build it. And so what we know about the church as we read Acts is that the church is really, it's God's living document. Substance will never be done being built by God. And the reason for that is because you will never be done being built up by God. So the church is God's living document because we are the church that Jesus is building. And so we're going to get some insight into how all that came into being, which is going to remind us of what the continued call is for us as Jesus' church. So it's a really important book for us in the life of our church. And so my prayer and what I hope you pray is that God just continues to empower us. He opens our eyes to what it is that the church is supposed to be and then what it's supposed to do based on what it's supposed to be. So let's just dive right in. Acts chapter one, we're gonna go through 11 verses this morning. And this is what it says as a book that Luke was writing to a man named Theophilus. He says, in the first book, Luke writes, O Theophilus, uh, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That first book that Luke is talking about was the gospel that he wrote, the gospel of Luke. And then he says, until the day when he was taken up, after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then we get into verse six, and he says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. So one of the big themes here and where our title comes from is that Jesus tells them, he said, you will be my witnesses. And so when we think about this word witness, 
What we want to understand about it is that it means giving testimony to truth. So if you are a witness to something, it means that you are giving testimony to the truth of what you know and what you've seen. I was sitting at a traffic signal years and years ago and the light turned green and I pulled out to turn left and the person coming the other way didn't stop. And I was in a big truck and just completely crashed into the back of my truck. And because my truck was so big and robust, I just, just kind of moved like that. It just didn't really wipe everything out. She ended up being okay. It was a mom with two kids. The police comes. And uh, the first thing she told the, the officer was she said, uh, the, the driver, the light was still red when he pulled out and I still had a green light. And I said, well, I mean, I, the light was actually green for me. And what changed the story and what gave the story the truth of the story was that the guy behind me um, saw that I took off when the light had turned green. So there was a witness. He was a witness to the fact that I didn't go on a red light, but I actually went on a green light. And this driver had just not noticed that her light had turned red. So the man behind me was able to be a witness to the truth that he saw. And you know, as the church, sometimes it's hard to see what God is, is doing. But what we do know is that God is always doing. God is always doing something. He's a doing God that only does what is good. Can you imagine if you had somebody like that in your life who they didn't have the ability to do anything but what was good? So we are called to be witnesses to that good so that others might become witnesses to his glory. So being a witness, when he says here in the first 11 verses, when we get that quote from Jesus about you will be my witnesses, being a witness means that our lives give testimony, Luke is writing here, to the fact that Jesus is alive. And in verses one through five, Luke is saying, and we have given, been given many proofs this is what he's talking to this man Theophilus about. Oh, Theophilus, he says. So what does Luke want Theophilus to know? Well, he wants Theophilus to know, first, above, and foremost, that Jesus is alive. He wants his brother to know that Jesus is alive. Now listen, you're a Christian here today, if you're a Christian, because Jesus is alive. That's the only thing that gives you that definition. That's the only thing that gives you that title of Christ is because Jesus is alive. And in fact, it would take Jesus being alive to instruct his disciples here, like he did, for what they were to do next. They would have had no other way of knowing that unless he was alive. They would have no other way to be sent on mission unless they did it with the knowledge that Jesus is alive. And so Luke is saying, hey, there were witnesses, there were eyewitnesses to this truth. There are proofs that Jesus rose from the dead and he walked the earth and he appeared to many after his death. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Because Paul was an eyewitness, because Jesus made an appearance to Paul after his death and resurrection. He said, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas or Paul, 
then to the 12, then he appeared, Paul tells us, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive back in that time that he wrote this. Though some have fallen asleep, some have died. So we see here that Paul affirms that Jesus appeared at one time to many people that saw him die, that knew he was dead, and then saw him raised again to new life. We remember also the story that Luke chronicles for us in his gospel, Luke 24. He talks about two men that were walking on a road to Emmaus and Jesus appears to them. And they're saddened because of the death of Jesus. They didn't know he had risen and they didn't recognize him. So as they're walking down this road, Jesus reveals himself to them by explaining to them going all the way through scripture about how the Old Testament, going into the New Testament, everything was talking about his life, his death, and his resurrection. Everything in scripture was leading to this truth that gives us this particular proof that what Jesus said was going to happen was going to happen. And that everything we read in scripture unfolded in exactly the way that God had planned it to unfold. So these are eyewitness accounts. They're documented for us in scripture, for us. They're proofs. And you know, proofs are, proofs are given to us for a reason. They're meant to encourage our hearts. And not just to encourage our hearts, but encourage our hearts so that we might be able to engage others with truth, right? Because you have a Jesus who's alive. I have a Jesus who is alive. Now, we had this cat named Joe, J-O, because she was not a boy. Um, and we had her for 18 years. And then when our daughter moved to Denver, she stole our cat away from us. And um, for those of you who are cat people, and I just think that's my wife here today, um, that was hard for us, but we were glad that she had the cat and the cat passed away a couple of weeks ago. And it was really sad because this had been a family cat. Um, here's the problem though, is that she can't use that cat to engage with others anymore. It's not a living thing. The reason why we have these proofs of Jesus's resurrection is to show us that Jesus is still alive because we can't engage others with the truth if we have a dead Jesus. Our faith is based on an alive Jesus that was raised, that ascended, is at the right hand of the Father now interceding for us. Man, that should give you some hope this morning. Not a dead savior. And in fact, if you use the word dead before savior, it crosses out savior. But physical proof, Ronnie, that's what I want. I want physical proof. I want physical proof. I want him to be sitting in that chair. I want to be able to see him. That's what I want. In John 20, um, the disciples were confronted with the physical Lord after his resurrection. We have seen the Lord, they said. Jesus made this really amazing response to them. He said, have you believed because you have seen me? He said, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Who was he talking about there? Well, he was talking about everybody that was going to believe by faith because they didn't have the experience of seeing him physically and that there was a blessing for those of us who believe by faith. 
even though we have not seen him physically. So God does something unique in our lives as the church 2,000 years later. He assures us through the faith he's given us, which then affirms the promises he makes to our hearts. And he does that through the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we sing the songs we do, when we sing Blessed Assurance, there's something in the singing of that. There's something being given to us as we affirm that to further assure us that Jesus is in fact real and that he's alive. Because if you're like me, you doubt. You doubt. And God uses those doubts to bring us to a place to reaffirm his truth in our lives. So doubts aren't the enemy. In fact, Martin Luther said, a Christian who does not doubt, I begin to doubt if he is really a Christian. We have doubts. We have doubts. Paul tells us in Romans, here's what helps alleviate our doubts. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit in our hearts that in fact, we are his children, not just children, but heirs. So you look to the person to the right or left of you and you say, oh, there's a fellow heir. Jesus said in John 14, he said this really encouraging verse. He said, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. He said, but listen, the helper, this is the word he had for the Holy Spirit. He said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And he said this, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he said this, because I want more than words. I want to know what those words are going to do. What are those words going to establish in me? Jesus tells us. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So he gives us something that is sustained by him that is a rock. He said, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So this peace that he gives you is how he extinguishes our fears. Why? Because Jesus is alive. So the church is a witness to the truth of Jesus. When we believe by faith with the power given to us through the Holy Spirit. So it's not just proof. It's a peace that comes into our hearts by a power not of our own. Now listen, we have proof that George Washington was an actual dude who wore a white wig, apparently. That's great. None of that helps me. George, George W., the first one, the old one. Boy, that was a Freudian slip right there for you. He doesn't help me. The proof that Jesus is alive, though, that's what helps me because it comes through the power that we receive through faith. So we have many proofs Luke says, but we have also received much power, which is what he says through the verses six and eight. And what's interesting, if you put your, you put your eyes down on those verses, there's some course corrector for the disciples from Jesus. Jesus wants to correct their thinking because here's the thing. We're like these dudes. 
We want to know more about what Jesus might do than what Jesus has done. But Jesus says, listen, fellas, don't become distracted by the times and the seasons. The father has them fixed. The father has these things taken care of. He says, keep your eyes fixed on me. You ever ask your kid when you're trying to talk to them and they're distracted and they're looking around and what do you say to them? You say, look me in the eye. Jesus right here is looking at his disciples and he's saying, hey, hey, boys, look me in the eye right now. I'm trying to tell you something that's going to help you as you move forward and where your gaze needs to be set and where your heart needs to be fixed. Don't be looking at all these other things. Don't become distracted. Why? Because these dudes were just as easily distracted as we are by all the stuff and by all the wonderings that they had in their mind about what God might do and when God was going to do the things he was going to do. Jesus is saying, don't worry about that. Do you ever notice how curious we are to know things that God has not allowed us to know? What's the reason for that? Well, can you imagine how arrogant we'd be if we knew the times and the seasons, right? Have any of you guys ever carried around a secret about something that nobody else knows? I mean, just think about how arrogant you are when you have that secret and you're dying to tell everybody, but you withhold it because it gives you some sense of control. It gives you some sense of power. Isn't it so good of God that he doesn't tell us his timing? He doesn't give us the times and the seasons. Why? Well, because we'd never need to trust him if he did that. We'd never need to ask him to empower us because our knowledge would puff us up and put us in the place of God, which is exactly what Adam and Eve were tempted to do in the garden and which they gave into the temptation of. I want to know. I want power. I want control. I don't want to have to trust you. Trusting you, God, is annoying. And it's fearful. And it causes my anxiety and my worry to rise up. Well, you go ahead and grab that call. <laughs> We're loose here. But receiving the power that comes from the work of the Spirit, it allows you to be witnesses to something, listen, that you can't conjure up on your own. Something that gives you the heart and the strength and the boldness to reflect the gospel with humility, which is the only way Jesus reflected the gospel, by the way, which was with humility. You will be my witnesses, Jesus says here. This is how God continues what he started 2,000 years ago with us. It's how he acts. He takes them, I mean, he takes the most unlikely fools the world has ever produced, gives them the power of the Holy Spirit and sends them all over the world in verse eight to be good news ambassadors. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that some of us get sent to our backyards. It means that some of us get sent to another state. Some of us get sent to a foreign land. None of you, however, get to bow out of the witness program of Jesus. We're all being sent. We're all witnesses in some unique way, in the unique place that God has placed us. Well, I can't do that, Ronnie. That sounds terrifying to me. Well, duh, right? God knows that you can't do it, which is why he gave you a power source. 
Which is why he gave you the third person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit. Because when you repented of your sins, when you believed the gospel, when you trusted Jesus for his work on the cross, for your salvation, what happened in that moment is that you received the power of the Holy Spirit in your heart as a forever person that would be there to empower you, reassure you, and build you in the truth. Man, that's good news, right? How do I tap into this power, though? Well, you plug in. You plug in. One of the challenges of mobile phones, right, and we all got them, are that they lose power. None of us has a phone that stays charged indefinitely. Apple probably has something like that, like in their secret headquarters, but they're waiting to release that um, because they got to figure out how to not lose money on all the power adapters we buy. Um, but at some point, you have to plug in your phone. You've got to plug that thing in to receive power to charge it up. Why do we imagine it's anything less for us as Christians? How do we plug into this power that we have through the Holy Spirit? Well, for starters and enders, we pray. We pray. Gosh, it's noisy here this morning. We pray. By the way, it'll come no other way, that power, in case you're wondering. The power of the Holy Spirit will come no other way. Ronnie, I feel weak. I don't know this power that you speak of. Do you pray? Do you plug in? My phone, Ronnie, my phone has been dead for two years. I, I have an iPhone, it never turns in. Have you ever plugged it in? Well, no. Okay. 1 Thessalonians 1, to this end, we always pray for you, Paul says, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for every good work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, Paul says, according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is talking to us about the power that prayer provides for us. James tells us in his, his book in chapter six, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. He reminds us of Elijah from the Old Testament, prophet. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, which means he was just like us. Don't idolize this dude. He struggled. He battled with massive depression. Um, he was just like us. But this is what Paul said. This is what uh, James says to us. He says, he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. Now, I'm not saying you can pray for no rain and it's not going to rain. I'm not saying you're going to be able to pray away the winter that's coming. But he said, then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. He's trying to point us to the fact that prayer is a particular power that doesn't give us more control, but allows us to learn how to relinquish control to the one who actually has it. And in that, our hearts are calmed and settled and then lifted up. Does that make sense? So we have many proofs revealed to us by faith and we have received much power by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, Let's press on, verses 9 through 11. So now when we get to verses 9 through 11, we're faced with a temptation and a warning against it. 
but at the same time with one of the most helpful reminders in all of Scripture. Now, first off, the angels, these men in white robes, they weren't saying the disciples just shouldn't look up, okay? That's not what they're really saying, that they shouldn't be casting their gaze on Jesus as Jesus was ascending back to the Father. These men are very subtly but very kindly reminding the disciples that witnesses of Jesus need to run off of and return to the promises of Jesus. So listen, gaze at Jesus, yes, but our gaze should never stop us from going. That's what they're trying to point out here. We should be looking to heaven as we labor to seek those lost in the clutches of hell. That's what's happening here. Now that's a purpose-driven life, right? To press on as witnesses to the beauty of Jesus, of the life of Jesus, of the death of Jesus, of the resurrection of Jesus. This is what Paul calls the upward call. He says this in Philippians. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then he says, brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I, I do, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, let those of you who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, you have those moments of immaturity. You have moments as a church when you're just freaking out and everything's messy and everything looks like a disaster. Everybody's crumbling. Everybody's falling all over the, the pews if we had those. This is what he says. And if anyone thinks otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. You can't stop God from giving you what God's going to give you. You can't stop God from giving you the proof and the power to continue to press on. You think you have that much game? Well, sometimes we do. Only let us hold true, he finishes here, to what we have attained. So let's press on. Let's hold true, Paul reminds us. The reason we can press on toward this upward call is because what happens here in verses 9 through 11, Jesus ascended because, again, he's not here with us. He left us here with a helper, with the Holy Spirit. Where is Jesus now? Well, he's now at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us. He finished his mission here. He fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament law. He formed a new covenant with us, his people. And he will return in the same way that he came back. Al Mohler says this, makes this quote. He says, the ascension proves that Christ actually resurrected from the dead and is currently reigning in heaven. The resurrection was not the finishing point of Christ's journey. It was the part of the route to his, or is that root? It was part of the route to his ascension and exaltation. What this means is that Jesus is reigning from God's throne. He is our high priest to us before God. We just sang about that when we sang before the throne. And he will someday judge the earth of all unrighteousness and injustice. This is the hope. This is the great hope. This is the blessed assurance we just sang about. This is why Christians shouldn't just stand looking, staring into heaven. Oh, man. 
Sometimes it's hard to finish a sermon. This sermon was such a, I, I was telling um, everybody that I could talk to, it, it took me three weeks to write an 11 verse sermon because it's just been so hard to concentrate. Um, you should know that about me. You should know that I struggle through everything that you guys struggle with and that I have nothing that God hasn't given me and hasn't provided for me and that your prayers um, help me greatly. I had people telling me, hey, we're going to pray that you get some words on paper to preach. I said, well, you got to because I ain't got nothing. And so people prayed and God gave me a few words. I'm grateful for it. But I want to finish on this note by asking the question, because I think it's really important for us, and that's how do we guard against what the, uh, these, these disciples are being warned against, which was idleness. How do we guard against our tendency to not want to be faithful witnesses? How do, how do we do that? Of all the things that Jesus could have left us with, right? All the tools, right? All the money, all the resources. What was the thing he left us with? Well, he left us with the Holy Spirit. Of all the things he could have left us with, he left us with proof of his truth. He left us with power from the Spirit. He left us with hope and assurance to press on as his witnesses. So our charge is to keep going and to continue gazing so that our going stays on track. We have to be a going people. We have to be a going people. What do you see when you look at Jesus? when you read the scriptures, when you reflect on God, when you pray to him, tell others what you see. Tell others about who you know. Tell others about the truth that God has revealed and given assurance to in your heart. Tell others about the darkness and struggles that sin has created in your life that Jesus has delivered you from. That's what being a witness is. And sure, I mean, let's just be honest. You and I, we're going to screw up the words. You're going to not have all the answers. But you're never going to go about any of it alone. You have the power of a resurrected Jesus living in your heart. Don't be like those dudes with the fast cars and the air-conditioned garages that never drive them out of the garage. They might as well just have a collection of Hot Wheels at the end of the day. Here's the thing. The church that Jesus builds is full of witnesses who will give witness to Jesus one way or another. You're going to walk out of here today and I don't care what you do. I don't care what your next move is. Hopefully it's donuts. But you're going to give witness to Jesus one way or another. What does your life give witness to today? Does it make a defense or does it deny Jesus? Does it give power to the truth of Jesus or is it just posture? Just part of this group that shows up on Sunday. Is it gazing, just standing, staring, or is it going, actively thinking and praying, Lord, what can I do? Is it division? Or is it devotion? 
By the way, it's okay if it's messy too. Jesus saved you in your mess. He saved me in my mess. He didn't wait for you to become impressive and then make a boardroom decision with the Trinity on whether you should make the cut or not. He chose you before the foundation of the world because he wanted to. He wanted to have mercy on you. So you're sitting here as a redeemed person because God said, I want you. And I'm going to slaughter my son to get there. But it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah, I don't know why either. I don't know why he chose me. I don't know why he chose you. When Jesus said you will be my witnesses, he knew who he was dealing with. He knew the messiness. He knows you. He knows the things you give witness to more than himself. He knows there's an enemy that does everything he can to create footholds in churches and divide churches. And that enemy is whispering to you all the time. He loves your distractions. He loves your laziness. He loves your yawning. He loves it when we stand idly by while Jesus floats into the air after another Sunday service, never to be prayed to, read about, or proclaimed again until next Sunday. How pumped is the devil about that kind of witness? He's pumped. But that's never where the story ends for the church because it's a church that Jesus builds and because it's a church that Jesus builds, the construction has never been dependent on us. He is the cornerstone of the church. He is the one holding all things together. And he holds you and he holds me together this morning. So we lean on him and we trust in him with everything that we have today, which may just be a thread. So pray that he gives you courage and boldness this week to walk as his witnesses. It's like those men in white are looking at you right now and they're saying to you, don't forget, Substance Church, Jesus is coming back just like he left in power and glory. Don't lose heart, they're telling you. They're saying, press on. Keep going. Keep praying. Keep being faithful. Plead with God for the power of Holy, this Holy Spirit to continue to transform you. The enemy wants you to be a witness to forgetfulness and idleness. But let's pray that God won't let him have a foothold in the church he is building for his glory. Lord, and that's our prayer, that you would continue to build the church like you promised to do, like you've never failed in doing. God, we thank you that you are faithful to us even when we are not faithful to you. We also recognize we have an enemy that wants to see us fall. And so Lord, we instead fall to our knees and we pray to you and we ask that you would humble us and that you would forgive us and that you would empower us and God, that you would renew our hearts this morning as we sing to you, as we fellowship together, as we eat and remember your blessings, 
as we remember your goodness, as we receive the bounty of the provision that you've given us, as you continue building the church in Ashland. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.